Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May the 11th. Uh, it's the afternoon in California, uh, later afternoon, early evening, East Coast and Europe. Uh, today, we are talking about the politics of our time. The politics of our time is obviously complicated, but often it's captured by certain events. Some Something happens that somehow captures, crystallizes all the contradictions, the complexities, the paradoxes of our age. Uh, one event that seemed to have happened late last week was in the United Kingdom, uh, Hartlepool, for those of you who are not familiar with the north of England, is a classic working class centre. And in the elections last week, the Conservatives, the Conservative Party of Boris Johnson and the other um, Etonian elites won Hartlepool uh, from Labour, the party of the working class, uh, for the first time ever. Um, according to somebody in The Guardian, the Conservatives' win is a in Hartlepool is a triumph of political rebranding. I'm not quite sure what political rebranding suggests. Perhaps it means that all politics is marketing. Um, but it certainly tells us something. It's the canary in the coal mine about what may about to be happening in the, in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Um, Henry Olson writing in the Washington Post suggests that uh, the Democrats should consider themselves warned from what happened uh, in Hartlepool. Um, he writes um, that the political trends in the US and Britain have mirrored one another for decades. So the Labour Party's stunning collapse across blue collar England in last Thursday's local elections is a clear warning uh, sign for Biden and the Democrats. Um, and uh, this concern about what's happening in, in Northern England uh, was echoed uh, by my guest today. Um, John Judas writing in uh, TPM suggests that the Democrats should worry about British Labour's collapse. He writes that they suffered the greatest collapse uh, in the last election in 2019, and this Hartlepool defeat represents an even deeper malaise on the left when it comes to the working class vote. Uh, John is the author of a new book or a kind of combination. Uh, it's, it's a new book called The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, Socialism, which brings together three of his previous books on populism, nationalism, and socialism. Uh, John... Tell me about Hartlepool, why you consider it to be so significant and what it might tell us about the politics of our time. Well, I think that there's uh, there are dramatic similarities between uh, what's happened in the UK and what's happened in the United States um, over the last 30 or 40 years, which is that you've had a um, real demarcation in, in uh, economic development between uh, the big cities, the big metropolitan high-tech finance, uh, 
edu higher education, um, fancy healthcare, and um, the small town, mid-sized towns that depended upon mining and the manufacturing. And um, you've had in both countries, you've had a, a, a political polarization that's arisen on though exactly those lines. And what's happened is that uh, in both those cases, the uh, party that was uh, uh, once identified as the party of the, the working class, labor in uh, the UK and um, the Democrats in the United States, um, have really lost touch uh, with uh, these kind of deindustrialized parts of uh, the country. And uh, so you've had this kind of paradox where uh, in, in Britain right now, um, the conservatives can claim to be the party of the working class. In the United States, it's not, it's more complicated because, you know, if you look at the, the working class, um, a lot of people in the working class uh, live in big metropolitan areas, minorities, and so on. So it, it really is concentrated in certain areas, Midwest, uh, South, but in those areas, you see a, a real uh, um, alienation from the Democrats. And you, you see it in, in states like Ohio, uh, Indiana, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where uh, Republicans are doing well in places where they just never, never have before. And the warning I saw in the uh, British elections, if you want to translate it into American, was that, you know, this kind of uh, polarization uh, asserted itself in 2016 and uh, led to Donald Trump winning the presidency. And, you know, it's a very inexperienced guy, a TV guy, a billionaire, I mean, who, who had a, a tremendous handicaps as a candidate, but he managed to win. Uh, now, uh, a lot of the reason that he won was that he spoke to these kind of areas in the country. Um, the Democrats in, in 2020 and in our congressional elections in 2018, benefited to a great degree by the fact that uh, Trump turned out to be, I mean, you know, some people saw this uh, uh, from the beginning, uh, corrupt. I thought he was going to sound out the, uh, sand off the, uh, really the rough edges of his 2016 campaign, uh, you know, attacking Mexicans as rapists and, you know, some judge and things like that. But in fact, he became uh, m more nasty. Um, over well, but, uh, John, let's, let's get into the, the three books you wrote, as I suggest, which, uh, Right. Uh, which which make up the pop the the politics of our time are the socialist right. awakening, the nationalist revival, and the populist explosion. Let's link all these three books to what happened in Hartlepool. You're an old man of the left. I mean, maybe not so old, but you certainly dedicated your life to the left. Um, do you feel a degree of regret? Have the working class, the old labor working class? Um, have they turned out to be much more conservative, much more reactionary, much more nationalist, much more vulnerable to the populism of television personalities like Donald Trump than you imagined? Well, maybe to Donald Trump, but um, I, I, I find myself to, to some extent um, uh, disillusioned with the left as much as I might be disillusioned with uh, the people who voted for Donald Trump. Uh, I, I'm, uh, 
I'm to some extent like the people uh, that uh, voted uh, uh, for the Tories. I'm I'm a left winger in economics. Um, I'm a Bernie Sanders uh, Democrat, but I'm you know more moderate on uh, social issues. I'm not. Uh, when I'm, you say moderate, are you suggesting? Um that you're uncomfortable with the sexual politics of our age, the racial politics of our age? Well, yeah, but you, again, you're going to have to pu push that a little farther because I, I'm uh, completely uh, in support of uh, equal rights for women. Uh, well, who, no, no, I don't think you would dare uh, say otherwise. I don't think we need I, to I go over that. that. Um, uh, but but uh, coming back to the, the, the white working class of Hartlepool and of the Midwest, um, I know in your book you talk about the Pagliani moment. You're uh, you're you're a big fan of Karl Pagliani's book about the great transformation from um, agri agricultural to industrial society. Are we in a post Pagliani moment now, where the old industrial age is being transformed into something quite different? Well, I think we're in a Polanyi mo moment in the sense that a lot of the um, policies that were adopted from, let's say, the late 1970s, the time of Thatcher and Reagan, Clinton, even through Obama, Cameron in, in the UK have, have uh, really not worked out. And the Great Recession was a clear example of that. Um, and now we have another uh, kind of crisis in our country and, and um, you know, in the world, the combination of a recession and a pandemic. And that's called forth uh, kinds of policies that, uh, you know, people were not willing to contemplate 20 or 30 years ago. Bill Clinton said the era of, of big government is over. Uh, in in uh, after the 1994 election, but uh, what we're seeing right now is big government. So we're in a Polanyi moment in the sense of he talked about the 19 early 1930s, where really everything had to change from the kind of policies that existed then. But it was a question of what direction government was going to go in, whether it was going to go in the right or whether it was going to go in the left, whether it was going to be Central Europe uh, with uh, uh, Hitler and Mussolini in Italy, or whether it was going to be Franklin Roosevelt. I, that's, you know, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, but we're in a kind of moment where you can see all uh, yeah, and, and, and big I think government in both cases. On right, and, 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 and let's go back to that... Um, that headline about rebranding, because all the all the parties and all the ideologies seem to be in in some ways in the business of rebranding, of rethinking themselves um, for a post-industrial age. Uh, last year, we had the excellent intellectual historian Edmund Fawcett on the show. He's written a couple of excellent books: one about liberalism and one and one about conservatism. And, and I want to quote him. He said, "Were politics chess?" Liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In times, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives, who began as anti-moderns, came to master modernity. For the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. What about the left, uh, John? Uh, they haven't proved to be very good at reinventing themselves, have they? They keep on um, they keeping they 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 keep on clinging to ideas, movements, personalities, which are in many ways archaic. Are there any 
people on the left who seem to be understanding our, our new world? Well, I, oddly enough, the 78-year-old, uh, 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 79, I guess now, uh, year old Bernie was pretty good. Uh, and I think he resisted. How was he good, the, John? What did he do that hasn't been said a million times before? Well, I, I think, first of all, he was a he was a politician from the left who really did speak to the problems of mid, middle America, who emphasized economics rather than social or cult, cultural issues. And I think that that uh, that resonated to a great extent. I think if you look at what's happening to uh, young people, um, you know, again, voters in the United States now, it's between 18 and 40 or so. Um, in that 2016 election, he got more votes uh, in the primary than Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump uh, put together. So uh, actually, the you know, paradoxically, a politician like that was speaking to young people uh, who feel an incredible amount of uh, insecurity in the world that they are coming into. So um, the, uh, again, I think that there is a, a great opportunity for the left, but you know, you have to recognize that to, to some extent in Europe, for instance, um, a lot of young people are going to the right, to the alternative for Deutschland. Right. So, uh, yeah. so, so, so let's talk a little bit about right. mood. Let's talk a little bit about you know, you've written this book, The Politics of Our Time. Let's escape from Hartlepool for the moment. Let's go to France. Um, uh, the Guardian had a really interesting piece last week talking about their fears of a coup in France, always fears of a coup, which are exaggerated. But Le Pen is becoming increasingly like a real possibility. And if Le Pen does indeed come to power in France, then everything changes, doesn't it? Maybe. I don't think she's going to come to power. I think that, uh, again, if you look at uh, the, the uh, local, you know, they do well, Le Pen and the, it used to be the National Front, now the National Rally, in these European parliamentary elections. Uh, but, but even, uh, well, I guess they had local elections last year. They, they did very poorly. I think that there's still going to be tremendous resistance uh, among a, a majority of French people to uh, vote, voting for her and voting for the national uh, rally, uh, both in terms of their experience of governing, which they don't have, and, and just the pay, echoes of the past. I, I don't think that they've overcome that. So I don't expect that. Uh, but, you know, as, as you know, uh, she's been trying to move toward the center now for, uh, to, you know, I guess 20 years since she tried to, she end, ended up kicking her father out, her own father out of the park. Yeah, party. which, uh, which wasn't so such I, a, right. You, you write in your, your, your book, as I said, the politics of our time combines uh, sections on the socialist awakening, on the nationalist revival, and on the populist explosion. It's nothing, though, about democracy. We had D David Stasavage on the show recently writing about the decline and rise of democracy, lots of books about democracy. I'm not, of course, suggesting that you're not interested in democracy, but um, how does your interest in populism, in nationalism and socialism, how does it fit into this shift towards authoritarianism around the world? We had Ruth Ben-Ghiat on the, on the show a few months ago uh, her book, Strong Men, writes about this shift towards 
strongmen in Turkey, in the Philippines, in Russia, uh, perhaps even in the United States, in Brazil. Um, what does what 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 is the future of democracy in the politics of our times? Well, you know, I'm I, I'm not a good person to talk about what's happening in the Philippines or in uh, Turkey. Uh, but I think again, what generally happens is that we're at the end of an era, uh, and we're really in terms of uh, the uh, in terms of democracy. You have the end of the Cold War in the 1989, 1990, uh, rise of China. Um, and in, in the United States, I mean, again, I, if you want to get back to this idea of a moment uh, where all the kind of old old solutions fall by the way, wayside, free trade, open borders, what have you, um, we're in a situation where things are moving right and things are moving left. I think they are moving more right than left. I, uh, but again, if you look at uh, Boris Johnson in, uh, in Great Britain, uh, really he, what he's doing in the United States would be seen as sort of center left. I don't, uh, so he's being forced by, this, by the circumstances to making the Tories a much more cent centrist or center left party than it was under uh, Cameron. So, um, you know, you have a lot of, again, a lot of, a lot of movement and in some cases, like Hungary, Poland, um, it's really the uh, attempts to, to uh, suppress democracy in the interests of people stay, staying in power. John, there's a term which I'm sure you're familiar with, pasophification. Uh, yeah. It refers to the, the Greek PASOK party and its collapse. Uh, we have a general decline of the center-left social democratic parties throughout the world, in Europe and, and, and obviously uh, uh, in many other Western democracies. Uh, what does that tell us, that the center-left seems to have disappeared? So the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party is strong. Uh, the Corbyn tradition in the Labour Party still exists. It may not be able to win power, but it generates a lot of passion. But the center-left, perhaps represented by someone like Starmer in, in the UK, and they just been humiliated in the polls, uh, doesn't seem to be grasping anyone's imagination. Why not? Well, look, I'm going to say something that might seem odd, which is that uh, in both uh, the UK and in the United States, we're now uh, governed by center-left uh, parties. I mean, I think, again, if you look at what Boris Johnson has done about social spending, about industrial policy, um, very much, uh, uh, you know, center or center left. Biden himself, uh, center left. Now, I think uh, I'm not sure everyone would agree with you. I mean, perhaps on Biden, but on Boris Johnson as a as a figure in the center left, maybe in the context maybe, of the yeah, Republican I mean, Party. Not, but yeah. otherwise, I mean, he's a nationalist. He's for Brexit. Uh, he doesn't seem to be very much on the left. Well, again, by my, uh, again, I think of things differently, maybe, I'm, again, on the economics and social issue. I don't think, I think Brexit was really an arguable position. And I think that as long, that what's happening in the EU itself, uh, and especially in the Eurozone, is that uh, the countries are really being strangled by the rules, by the inability to have uh, state aid, uh, to de devalue their currency if they're in trouble. So 
a lot of the places where you have this, uh, you know, this word, what is it? Pesacification. Yes, pesacification, pesacification. incredible trouble are places where they've become identified willy-nilly with austerity and unemployment because they really can't do much about it given the rules of the EU. And so that's happened, uh, that's happened in Greece, it's happened, you know, happened in Italy, Spain, etc. Et so that's, I think that that's a big factor why in, in uh, Europe you see these problems. And a country like Denmark, where they still do have social, uh, the Democrats are, are in charge, are all, one is out of the Eurozone, and two, the, the party itself has taken a more moderate stance on immigration. So again, I think that that's a that's a factor. Uh, John, very briefly, we, we've talked a lot in on this show about um, Donald Trump. Of course, we had Sarah Kenzier on the show recently, suggesting that we shouldn't forget the Trump years. Lots of debate about whether Liz Cheney can reimagine herself, re reinvent herself to compete with Trump. What do you think the legacy of Trump is in American terms? Uh, well, you, you know, there's a it, there could be a very dark legacy of Trump, which is the uh, uh, you know the disintegration of our democracy because the uh, stuff that he did after the election was uh, unprecedented in my lifetime. The stop the steal and. Uh, um, the Republican Party, to some extent, seems to have been captured by that, and it's very, very dangerous. So that that could be a legacy. In terms of policy, I think that um, you have to look at U.S.-China, the real changes that took place. Uh, supply chains, I think that he correctly uh, brought attention to the fact that uh, these global supply chains were very dangerous and that we had to in terms of vital industries, bring a lot of stuff home uh, so that we weren't stuck with having to rely for, uh, on, uh, for instance, dr drugs from China, even aspirin during a, uh, you know, dur during a pandemic. So uh, I think that there were, again, there were, there were policies that or attention that Trump brought willy-nilly that were positive and that Biden to some extent has taken up. I mean, I, I credit him with not having done what Trump did. Trump just everything that Obama did, he did the opposite. Uh, you know, B Biden has also recognized that we have to do something about our our uh, trade relations with uh, China and about uh, do, getting certain kinds of industries made in America. So, you know, all, all power to him. And that's a positive side, but there's an incredible negative side. Uh, and that's the th threat to democracy that Trump and his uh, followers are posing. Finally, John, uh, as I said, your, your book uh, combines the populist explosion, the nationalist revival, the socialist awakening into the politics of our times. Um, one thing that ties socialist awakening, nationalist revival, populist explosion is the role of labor, uh, organized labor. We've had a number of shows about reinventing uh, labor organizations in the 21st century. Sarah Horowitz, for example, has a new book out called Mutualism. Can the unions, can organized labor be reinvented in a networked age, in a digital age, um, perhaps even in a post-capitalist age? 
I, I don't know. And that's the, a major obstacle to uh, the revival of uh, any kind of uh, left wing or even center left politics. I think that, you know, in 2022, Biden could find himself with a Republican uh, House and see a lot of things reversed. The labor movement, not only important in terms of uh, wages, uh, but also was a major political power. Uh, the, the, one of the reasons Democrats find themselves behind in all these state and local places is there's no uh, organized uh, power there to uh, contest uh, the chambers of commerce, the churches, the gun clubs, etc. The, the labor movement always provided that to the Democrats. I don't know the answer, and people have been trying to figure it out uh, now for 30 uh, years to how to have an effective labor movement in this new kind of era. But I think that one thing is a prerequisite, that if the Democrats are, ever do find themselves with real majorities in Congress, they have to do something about the labor laws in the country. And in Britain, that's a problem too. I mean, Thatcher passed a lot of stuff that made labor organizing more difficult and made it much harder to do uh, strikes in the, in the UK. And Blair didn't do anything about that at a time when he could have. Well, there you have it. The politics of our time, beautifully summarized by John B. Judis, uh, combining three of his smaller books on populism, nationalism, and socialism. Uh, John, perhaps your next work will be on labor and the reorganization of labor organizations in a, in a, in a um, highly technological age, maybe on AI or on Bitcoin or blockchain or something like that. Real honor to have you on the show. Uh, the Politics of Our Time is a, is a really interesting and important new book. Encourage everyone to get it. Keep well, John, and we'll have you back on in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me.